Hey, just a quick note on the program today. About 35 minutes in, we lost the audio for about 30 seconds. And when I return, I sound like I am in a tunnel. And I thought that I would just try to edit it out the best I could. But I found that Daniel's answer that was cut off was so good. I didn't want to edit out any of it that I had. So we do lose about 30 seconds of audio, and it sounds a little funny for the remainder of the interview. But it's worth listening to. Just want to let you know ahead of time, and I apologize for the audio quality. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I'm talking with Daniel Hill. Uh, Daniel is the author of White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be with you. Now, I want to start with this. You're white. I'm white. We're having this conversation about racial justice and there can be a real tendency, you talk about this in the book, there can be a real tendency in the woke white community to sort of talk over black and other minority voices as we pursue <laughs> justice. So uh-huh. I, I just kind of want to start the conversation and ask you what ground rules should we set as white people when we have this conversation with other white people to make sure that we are allowing for those other voices, for those voices to be heard. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think it's smart to start there. I definitely wouldn't say it's one or the other. There's a role for both. I mean, I think ultimately you, me, all of us should be learning from credible seasoned voices of color that have been doing this work. You know, when we're talking about the system of race and of white supremacy in particular, yeah, nobody's going to see it more clearly than those who are disaffected by it and who are on the underbelly of it. So, there's not any point in the journey where we should not be listening to and learning from um, seasoned voices of color in this period. There's no question about that. Um, I think what history continues to show is that even when they speak to us, we're just not listening clearly enough, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're just not making right. enough changes. And so I think there's an important role, most of them say it's an important role, for white folks to be doing self-interrogation, you know, around their own kind of relationship and complicity with this. And so that's what I would see what we're doing, right? We're not even taking somebody's spot as much as saying we're listening to the collective wisdom that's out there and we're having conversations around, you know, why are we hearing this clearly enough or how can we hear it more clearly or how can we position ourselves and posture ourselves differently? So I don't see it. what we're doing is different than listening ultimately to the seasoned voices of color. It's just doing our own interrogation work around it. Mm-hmm. That's good. You, the, I think the very first point you make in the book is the danger of being woke. Uh, and... I, let's we, we have to define that phrase first. So how how do you define the word woke, and what do you feel is the danger of white people feeling that way? Yeah, um, it, it's a little bit of a that, that, that was the trickiest title to come up with of any of them mm-hmm. because not a lot of people, even people doing this work, a lot of them don't love the word woke, and right. so I don't want to get fixated on the word woke itself. But, I mean, I'd say in general there's two different profiles of where white folks are at with this work. And one is the much more common one where there's just a lack of awakening, a lack of engagement, a lack of taking this seriously. You know, there's kind of an ongoing indifference and apathy that has to be challenged. Um, and then there's another group that's probably more represented by you and I and folks who are listening to this who have begun to see that there's a problem and want to be doing something about it, which we, of course, want to encourage. Um, and that's where the word becomes um, significant, right? Of like, for white folks who are trying to do this work and be on the right side of this, this is where the notion of wokeness kind of comes. And the way the term is usually used, to be woke, when white people are speaking of it, is to be basically aware of the issues, on the right side of the issues, down with the right causes, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, 
uh, and it's worse, and this is what I'm cautioning against in the first practice, that it's worse, what it's, what it's communicating is kind of a, kind of almost an, an arrival point of enlightenment where, you know, it's like, oh, phew, you know, I get it. I see what's wrong. I'm on the good side of this. You know, I'm not on the bad side of this, like all those people that I would point to. Um, and that's, that's the particular part of this idea of woke. I mean, certainly being conscious is always valuable and always good. So that's in the word too, which is positive, but any sense of arriving, any sense of a destination, any sense of looking for a fixed state of enlightenment, any, any sense of trying to kind of prove to people of color, to other white people, even to ourselves, that we've arrived, that we get it now. Um, this is where um, the notion of like, what, what, even if it's a different word that's used, this is where the notion of wokeness becomes uh, really risky. Mm-hmm. It's very hard because uh, I know I speak as a pastor, uh, you're a pastor, we're used to these positions of authority. Uh, particularly positions of authority where we use our voice to speak out. And it can be very easy for us to be like, oh, you know, we get excited. We want to use the platform that we have, the gifting that we have, the calling that we have to to raise awareness about this issue. And we can sometimes we dive in and we, we dive in too deep without really understanding the context or understanding um understanding how taking over the conversation can be harmful and the thing that i have seen the thing that i you know i think personally have have really been cautious about and the thing that i have seen people uh, that are beginning this work fall into the trap of is they read a book and they think that they're the authority and no longer wanting to listen or grow um, by listening to the voices of of their you know black brothers and sisters minority brothers and sisters um, what were some mistakes that you made early on in your journey that you see people making now and you're like you know we don't have to make these mistakes you know learn learn from the people that have gone before you yeah it's interesting you just use a metaphor I've never used but I think I could apply here you're talking about how we're pastors and you know, there's almost this danger of, you know, seeing the authority that might come with that and applying that. But it's actually not maybe a bad metaphor for how to think of what the journey should be, right? Like if we if we talk about how somebody becomes a Christian, right, um, the very nature of you, you have to let everything go, right? You have to lay everything down. You have to say, I'm a sinner. I can't do this on my own. It's only with God's help, right? And God's say saving power. And if we thought of this process of going from becoming a Christian to becoming a pastor, <laughs> so to speak, right, you wouldn't have somebody who got converted on Monday and then was trying to pastor a church by Friday. Right? I mean, we understand there's a long process, like not, forget even the pastor for a minute, right? There's a long process of becoming somebody who understands our own sin and our own desires, how to like engage in the classic spiritual disciplines, how to grow spiritually. I mean, it would be way down the road before we're even thinking about being pastors, right? And then even when we are become pastors, we need to be formally trained by it. We need to be accredited. We need to have groups to kind of recognize that, right? I, <clears throat> that's not actually a bad analogy to like where it goes wrong and where it goes right, right? It's, it's not to say that there can't be some substantial roles that white folks play in this, but there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of seasoning that has to happen before that. And there's a lot of establishment, you know, by this, there, there needs to be established leaders of colors who kind of say, here's a white person who's done the work. We validate kind of the way they see this and see the role now. Right. And, um, and that's a long way of answering your question, right. Of like, a lot of us get saved on Monday and then we're trying to save this thing. You know, we're, we're trying to take on a leadership role, you know, right after that and trying to fix something that really is so far beyond our understanding still. And so I think that's where the risk is, 
You know, so the answer isn't become complacent and indifferent and don't do anything. But the answer is also not take on an immediate leadership role, try to move from ignorance and apathy to like suddenly trying to be the ones who lead the charge. Right? Leadership is probably the big piece here, right? It's, uh, th- there's very little risk with being actively involved under the leadership of established leaders of color in this. When as white folks, we try to take the lead on solving a problem that's generations in the making and which we are blind to until two weeks ago, like that's probably where the risk level becomes mm-hmm. really high. Yeah. I think my introduction to this sort of um, involving authority came from my, my first pastorate was I spent seven years in an Asian American church. And so here I am, this white guy who speaks no Mandarin Chinese, uh, who is tasked with teaching high school and teaching the youth group and then eventually teaching the entire congregation. And it was, there was such a difference in how I had to make sure that I came across the right way. Like I, you know, I just realized, you know, maybe a few months in that like, there are so many cultural differences here um, that I, you know, I can't, I can't just speak to my experience. Uh, I need yeah. to sit back and I need to learn from their experiences first. And uh-huh. you know, that started, that started in, in the youth group. Um, kids who were, you know, second generation or sometimes third generation immigrants, um, who by and large saw themselves as, you know, part of American Western culture, but their parents didn't. Um, and so I, I, you know, I can recall on a couple of different occasions where just in the context of the book that we had been studying, you know, we're getting ready to talk on race issues and, you know, I just had to, you know, I preface everything that I say by like, I am, I am not the best person to, to teach you about these things. Um, I want to hear from, from you first and it really changed the discussion uh and it, and it but it really opened people up as well and i you know i think i learned as much from them as vice versa you know i could i could bring in here's what i've read here's what i've studied uh here are the leaders that i have spoken with and you know and then also it affects the black community differently than the asian american community and there, there's all of these all of these variables, and it makes for it makes for a very complex um, way. It, it, it's so easy just to be like, I'm the leader, I decide, I talk over everyone. It is right. it's messier and it's more complex, but you you move forward when you take that that posture of learning from others and being part of a discussion. Um, mm-hmm. What was it for you that started you on this this path of the work toward racial justice? <laughs> it's kind of an unexpected place. Honestly, looking back at my life, I realized you can't live in America without coming up face to face with racism and white supremacy on a regular basis. But you can continue to walk away, which is what I did all my you know early years. It was really I was a young minister. I was doing my first cross cultural wedding. It was a white woman and a Indian man. His parents were um, first generation from India. And uh, he said, hey, Daniel, you're going to get a deep dive into Indian culture at my wedding, particularly the rehearsal dinner. And so I was like, oh, great. I'm really looking forward to that. And it was. It was a very magical experience kind of seeing the way they organized it and the food and the dancing and the music and the sounds and the smell. And when uh, the night came to an end, I pulled him to the side and I said, hey, I just I just want to thank you so much for this experience. I said, obviously, as a white person, I don't have any culture, uh, but it was a real gift for me to be exposed to your culture. And uh, you're laughing, you know where it's going, right? So this guy was a very gregarious guy who very rarely 
got serious about anything, especially when I was expecting the night for his wedding. But he got very serious in that moment. He put his hand on my shoulder, tall guy, 6'5", put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, Daniel, not only do you have a culture, when your culture comes in contact with other cultures, your culture always wins. Uh, one of the greatest gifts you could give me for my wedding would be to become a serious student of your own culture. And then with that, took his hand off my shoulder, went back out on the dance floor, <laughs> kind of left me standing there between two worlds, you know, and despite all these interactions I've had with race up to that point and never taken seriously, God used that one to really unsettle something in me, not only from the state of white culture, which was very peculiar to me, but the power dynamic that for him to suggest that my culture always wins when it comes to all kinds of others. That, that was really the catalyst for probably half honest, seeking out truth, half defensiveness, wanting to disprove them. <laughs> you know, but that's really what began the journey for me. I was 24 at that time. Mm-hmm. So you've written uh, this book, White Lies. Uh, your previous book was Wide Awake, I think, which might detail more of that, the beginnings of your journey. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. I, I haven't read that one, unfortunately. It's on my it's on my to-do list. Um, so you, at what point in this journey did you start to think, or did the opportunities arise that you were like, this is going to be a major component of my ministry? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was just in a couple of years at that point. Um, what it really, I kind of went backwards before I went frontwards, only in the sense of that, you know, I've been up at the church all my life. I'm a pastor's kid. I'm a scholar's kid. My dad wrote a ton of stuff, you know, in the scholarly world. So I was exposed to all the inner workings of evangelicalism growing up. And what I realized when I started becoming more and more conscious of how far-reaching and dangerous white supremacy is, I also became just aware of, just painfully aware of how little the white church talks about it. Certainly talked about it back then, but I'd say largely still, um, you know, outside of the occasional just kind of low-hanging fruit, would say, don't discriminate against anybody, don't mistreat anybody. I mean, that's a no-duh, right? I mean, everybody agrees with that. But in terms of any kind of biblical analysis of understanding what white supremacy was and how it works and how to think about it biblically, um, engendered really, it, it, it engenders a lot of the same responses even now, you know, for especially like in the evangelical or evangelical adjacent world, if you get, if you get somebody talking about the need to confront white supremacy, you'll start getting called things like Marxist, socialist, uh, you know, the, the terms, the three terms that always kill it is if it's called, <laughs> they'll, they'll tell you you're being political, you're being liberal, or you're being social. Right. But there, not, not only is there a lack of theology in the white evangelical world, it's actually frowned on when you try to, understand white supremacy through the lens of the Bible. And so that actually led to a faith crisis at first. And so I almost had to like rediscover Christianity, Jesus, the Bible in a deeper way. And in a way that didn't fit really honestly within my white evangelical setting. Of course, once I got there, once I realized that the only answer to this is Jesus and that this is my belief. Now I believe white supremacy represents the most powerful principality that contests with Jesus for lordship overall you know, once I arrived at that conclusion, like everything I do is because of Jesus, right? Like that's the reason I'm a pastor. That's the reason I do everything. Once I came to that theological conclusion that I believe white supremacy is the most serious principality threat to the Lordship of Jesus, you know, I, I was done for after that. I was never going to again be able to try to follow Jesus without, you know, understanding how that connected to confronting white supremacy. Mm-hmm. That's one of the points in the book that you made that I think changed the conversation for me that made me look at this in a new facet um, was that understanding of white supremacy as spiritual warfare 
we've you know we've we've attacked it on on so many different levels. You know, we can look at the history and it's incontrovertible. Uh, we can look at the present and much of it is is maybe a little more um, you know there's a little more double speak. It's a little more veiled, but it's still yeah. incontrovertible. Um, but I I don't think I had read or or anyone or thought about this as spiritual warfare and it's baffling because as a pastor I definitely should have it should have been my first uh, inclination but that really changes then how we oppose white supremacy yeah. um, right. and that's I think <laughs> opposing white supremacy has has kind of been a very explosive theme of this year and how we do that, whether is is rioting acceptable, um, is protest acceptable? How should we protest? Changing the conversation to one of spiritual warfare, how do we engage white supremacy differently through that lens? Yeah, I, I appreciate this for the question. I'm, I'm going to change this a little bit just myself. Like, mm-hmm. I don't even know what to say differently because I, I, that would assume that the other approaches shouldn't happen, which I know you're not necessarily saying. I just I would like to you know, just for myself, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, but I think in the same spirit of it, the main of it, like I think what, what we're trying as believers we need to do is, is is have clear a clear line of sight into what's at the very heart of white supremacy, what's at the very root structure of white supremacy. And I think you can make a very indisputable case that was at the root structure of white supremacy is lies. Um, white supremacy is built on a narrative that says white people are inherently more valuable than any of every other human, that black people are the least valuable of every human that's been created, and that everybody else, you know, Latin, Latinx or Asian American or Middle East or whatever, their, their value is measured based on the proximity to the higher end of whiteness to the lower end of blackness. And while any of our listeners probably say, oh, well, I, I, I repudiate that. I would never believe that lie. We're not trying to go person by person saying who believes it, who doesn't. We're trying to say society is built off of this lie. This lie courses through the veins of every sector of our society. And so if that's true, and you know, maybe that's a whole podcast to make the case that that's true, but that's my belief, that that's what's at the root structure of white supremacy, that it lies. If that's the case, then it's, it's a profoundly spiritual issue, right? Because that's the primary way the devil is talked about in the Bible is that of a liar. John 8, 44, Jesus says the devil's a liar. His native tongue is that of lies. He's the father of lies. So the devil's primary method, uses Ephesians 6 language, right, where the Apostle Paul says, beware of the devil's method, beware of the devil's schemes. But, but lying, that's how, that's how the devil works. The whole point of putting the armor of God is to combat the lies, the methods of the evil one. And so if lies, that's how white supremacy works, then I don't know how we could, how we could think of it as anything other than something that's protected by dark spiritual forces. And Jesus himself is truth. We know that, right? He's the truth. He's the way, the truth, and life. He brings truth. He sets, he sets people free through truth. So if Jesus is truth and the devil's a liar and white supremacy is built on lies, that's what, that's its heart. That's its root structure. It's a spiritual battle of the truth of the Mago Dei, who we are as made in the image and likeness of God, versus the lies of race, which say human value is not tied to the Mago Dei. It's tied to where you fall in this racial hierarchy. Mm-hmm. There is a difficulty in moving people from the concept of I'm not racist to the systems in which I live in are racial. That has been, in the conversations that I've had, probably the most difficult thing to get people to move from. 
because there is just that innate tendency towards self-defense rather than the tendency to to be able to step back out of one's own experience and look at the larger context how do we move people from that self-defense posture to one that is more willing to see the way in which systemic racism pervades all of our institutions yeah so I, I for sure agree with you that it's hard to get white Christians to, to move in this, but I'd also think, I, I hope we can make this point clearly, I also think it's not hard, and we can show it's not hard. It's, what's really the problem is we're picking and choosy about when we apply and when we're not. So I'll tell you from a story. I was talking to a white pastor. In this case, here's an interview. This is him actually wrestling through it. He used language just like what you're using, but for himself saying, I, I don't know how to make this jump to like, I hear what you're saying. I do actually believe lies are wrong, but like, I don't know how to apply it to white supremacy. That feels far-fetched a little bit to be talking about systems and structures. There's nothing to do about that. I said, huh, okay. Uh, so tell me this then. I said, I know you and I know your church well. I know last month you guys had a Sanctity of Life Sunday at your church. How did that go? You went, went great. I said, so tell me if this sounds about right, how you theologically make the case. Even if you use these exact words, tell me if this sounds about right, how, you, how the typical Christian in your church moves from their understanding of Jesus to the need to fight against abortion. So it starts with the Imago Dei, right? This doctrine that all human life carries dignity because it's made in the image of God. And so the starting point for fighting against abortion is the Imago Dei, that babies are made in the image of God and therefore are worthy of being loved and protected, right? He said, yeah, absolutely. I said, and then on top of that, what the typical Christian is seeing is that there are these systems and structures in our society that are putting the lives of these babies at risk through abortion, right? And that as believers, of course, there's no one in the Bible that says anything about abortion, right? I'm not saying that's, that means we shouldn't be doing it. I'm just saying clearly they don't have a passage that talks about abortion, but it's an easy jump to make to say the Imago Dei that marks the life of these little babies in their mother's womb is worth fighting for. And if there's systems and structures that put those, those lives at risk, it's a Christian's obligation as they're loving our neighbor to stand up against those systems and structures, right? And he said, right. I said, and your congregation has no problem with that whatsoever, right? He said, right. I'm like, there's not a single thing different in the logic flow from a theological standpoint of the fight against white supremacy. It's a starting point that the image of God is what dictates human value, not this lie of race, not this narrative of race. And you can make a case numerically. I'm not trying to dismiss the importance of life, but you can make a case numerically that the threat level posed to children of God because of the lies of white supremacy and racism far exceeds the lives that are at risk because of abortion. And it's the exact same structure, right? It's Imago Dei, Christ followers. Systems and structures putting an attack, standing up. Like, it is literally exactly the same thing. But I tell me if this is not the case. You can do sanctity of life on one Sunday, and you're going to get amens all the way through. And you can do sanctity of life in terms of fighting against white supremacy the next Sunday, and you're going to risk losing that quarter of your church. He said, yeah, that's true. I said, so it has nothing to do, ultimately. I mean, I realize we have to do this work of moving people. But it's not because Christ's followers can't follow the thread line of understanding the way systems and structures put God's children at risk. We've just been conditioned to think of white supremacy as something very different. And we've been socialized really almost to think of it as this political social reality when really we have no, no trouble in, in the civil evangelical space. We have no trouble following that same line of thinking when it comes to defending the unborn. Mm -hmm. I think it, because, because the way in which we talk about race is so different from just a generation ago then then it becomes very easy 
for people to to look back and be like, well, I'm not racist because X, you know? Um, I'm not racist because I'm not a part of the KKK. I'm not racist because mm-hmm. I don't approve of lynching. And you're like, well, these are like, like this is like the the very very bare minimum. Like this is, you, you don't have to be the most racist to be racist. Um, there's there's gonna be levels of gradation there, um, and they're not going to be in your face. They're going to be, I think, and I think the shift from from overt racism to systemic racism not that systemic racism wasn't there before because it definitely was uh, but as overt racism so, sort of faded out and was no longer culturally acceptable then a lot of white christians just went hey we solved the problem that's great uh and we never actually talked to our our black brothers and sisters minority brothers and sisters uh to ask them if the problem was actually solved uh or if we had actually done any good work in in uh, moving the problem, moving moving the issue forward. Another thing that I have often run into is that um, they, they always they, they, there's always this like touting of the exception to the rule. Uh, we can look at racialized systems that keep uh, minority people overwhelmingly and poverty at rates uh, disproportionate to to white people. Um, we can look to uh, police brutality and how it affects minorities at a much greater rate than it does white people. But white people always have the exception to the rule to look at. Um, oh, look at this person, this black businessman, this black entertainer or athlete. Um, they're millionaires, so if they can get out of the hood, uh, if they can overcome you know, then then why can't everybody else? Um, or here's you know, you post anything regarding anything social justice, and you'll get you know the one black commentator, the one conservative black commentator, who who disagrees, um, and that's the one that's the one black person that they're going to listen to, the one minority <laughs> person they're going to listen to. Is there a way in which we can counter that, you know, so long as I have one person who agrees with me, um, you know, if I can find that one voice, that's all that I need. Is there a way of <laughs> countering that and being like, well, you're, you know, let's listen to what the majority of, of people are saying because experiences mm-hmm. are so vast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, they're related. I see, I see it as probably two different things. The, uh, looking to the exceptional person who overcame the struggle and, you know, basically dictating what the, how big the problem is based on that versus like selecting which voices you listen to and don't. So is there one of those in particular you, you want to tackle? Uh, I know. I, I think, I think it's the latter one that I am finding uh, is the more of the, more of the issue that I've seen. Um, so the picking and selecting what voices we want to listen to. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I don't think we want to call this for ourselves, but I think this is what it is. I think it's, a, it's an abject exercise of power to do something like that, right? So if we put it maybe in more the world of a lot of us to know, if we grew up in a church setting that says premarital sex is against God and outside of God's design, then that's what you hear in every circle you're in. And then you find a fringe so-called kind of Catholic, um, Christian who says, no, actually, I don't think uh, I don't th- I don't think sex out of my side marriage is wrong at all. In fact, I think 
we do glory to God when that happens and makes a case for it. If you start going around and saying, look, this person used the Bible and says this, I'm sure this is the right thing. What would anybody say? They'd say that goes against it's, it's, it's a very point you just made, right? This goes against the historic creeds, the historic perspectives on this, right? You can't find one standalone voice to kind of make the point you want to make when it goes against the larger collective chorus, you know, of those who have lived this. So I, I think to your point, like, uh, you know, if 99 black Christians describe white supremacy in a certain, in a certain kind of way, and you find one who describes it differently, I, mean, I would hope it would just go without saying that that's an enormous exercise of power to highlight the one and to discredit the 99 um, by doing that, I realize that's happening a lot, but I do think we should be honest about what that is. It's a, it, we're exercising power of who we're going to not only listen to, but then which voices we're going to highlight, you know, and then that just ends up exasperating and perpetuating the very systems that have got us to where we are. Mm-hmm. One of the chapters in your book that I found very interesting, and we, we've kind of jumped uh, here and there uh, through, through the, the nine different practices that you list in the book. Um, but, um, practice number six was tell the truth in, in that chapter, uh, you, you really just kind of went through American history and, um, did, you know, not rewriting it because you're, you're quoting from original sources, uh, with minimal commentary, but it's the side of, of the founding fathers that doesn't get portrayed in the midst of you know American civil religion, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and you know we're recording this interview the day after Columbus Day, and uh, I'm going to read from a White House statement on Columbus Day, and, just, and they just said, uh, "Sadly, in recent years, radical activists have sought to undermine Christopher Columbus's legacy." These extremists seek to replace discussion of his vast contributions with talk of failings, his discoveries with atrocities, and his achievements with transgressions. Rather than learn from our history, this radical ideology and its adherents seek to revise it, deprive it of any splendor, and mark it as inherently sinister. Um, and that that statement's gotten a lot of play um, in in the media the past couple of days. It is... We, it is inevitable that we like to we we like to whitewash characters from American history, and the president does it when he releases this statement. Um, Lin Manuel Miranda did it when he released Hamilton, and we all love Hamilton regardless of our political beliefs. I think it seems like everyone does. Um, we don't want to focus on the negative aspects, even if those negative aspects are overwhelming. And a lot of times it's justified with the, the sentence, oh, they were a product of their times. Mm-hmm. What, what can we really say about that sentence? Because it's not untrue. Uh, there's just the question of whether or not that is justified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, again, there's probably a couple layers there. Um like they're, that statement you just referred to, they're not saying he's a product of the times, right? They're basically saying he's being unfair uh, right there like that. Yeah, right? so yeah, yeah. I, I'd, actually, I'd actually say the bigger problem we have is we don't even tell the truth at all. Like it's, it's still a challenge, but it's not as big a challenge if you tell the truth, but then have different perspectives about it, right? Like, so like for instance, to say, if we say tell the truth, there's slavery, there was genocide, there's this, 
but here's the rationale for it. Like that still merits a conversation, but that's actually much closer to the truth because at least you're recounting history accurately. And then there's a difference in perspectives of how much meaning to assign to it. But that's actually not usually where we're at. Usually where we're at is an outright like uh, denial of it, right? Or a retelling of the facts or an overt attempt to skirt around those things that are very serious. And um, that's the far more even problematic because then you really actually are messing with the truth, right? So like actually change the telling of what actually happened rather than telling what happened and having a different perspective on it. Um, but I, I'm certainly that's my ongoing experience in a lot of spaces. Like if you even just try to objectively, and I use that word carefully, right? The subject is when we have our own perspective on it, right? When you try to objectively tell the facts of what happened, people will even challenge that because it challenges their sense. Like they feel like you're going unpatriotic or they feel like you have this leftist radical agenda. That's the kind of language that's in that statement, right? So even an objective telling of facts um, is not often heard well because it doesn't match the objective facts that most of us have been taught about history because there is this overt attempt to sanitize and change it so that we don't have to carry the heaviness that comes with the reality of so many of the things that happened. Mm -hmm. I, I find that so interesting because the the conservative evangelical church has has preached truth so much. Uh, oh, you know, right. tr truth doesn't care about your feelings. Um, you know, we hear that, and right. conservative political um, pundits say that um, the, the truth over you know. Truth over love uh, is seen in a lot of a lot of churches. Right. That, you know, I'm right. I'm I'm right. gonna I'm gonna preach what sin is, and if some people are offended, right. I don't care. Right. Get That's them right. out of here. Uh, right. I'm gonna tell the truth. How do we navigate? Like it, it's just such a blatant change for me uh, that many of the people who you know I, were my mentors, thought leaders growing up that they instilled in me such an adherence to follow the truth follow the truth and right. and but now in you know in a different context on a different subject i'm following the truth and it doesn't matter anymore that's right. uh, I, I you know I, I don't think there's an answer to that i just think that this is like a if, if we knew how to solve that problem um you know we we would but it's just it's just very frustrating to be like I've trained my entire life to craft an apologetic right. uh, in a right. certain way to defend my faith to defend what I believe and when right. I take those tools and I apply them to this area of racial justice then it it has no effect whatsoever. Right. What do we do to to have those conversations and and be taken seriously? Well, I, I actually think there are answers to why that truth is hard to tell. They're just not comfortable answers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I don't know how deep you want to go into that, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's what we're up against. Like that, that, that's the craziness of this day that we're in where because white supremacy is built on lies, that only the only people who can really have the spiritual authority to take it on is the church, right? The church is the only one tasked with the spiritual authority to take on the lies of racism because we are the ones who know the Jesus who is truth. So when the church not only advocates its role and does not take on the lies, but actually becomes a safe harbor for the lies and refuses to have these honest conversations, now we're all upside down, right? We're not just not doing what we're supposed to do. We're creating safe power over that lie. We are organizing ourselves around that reality that the truth of Jesus Christ 
speaks over the lies of racism and white supremacy. Until a critical mass of white can do that, we will remain impotent in this conversation because we're having these trying to have 201 and 301 conversations when we never land on that foundation, which is the truth dismantling the lies that the system was built on. And so I, I, to me, that's the fight. That is the fight is how they get a critical mass of white Christians to clearly and precisely see how white supremacy is built on a lie, to clearly and precisely understand how the truth of the kingdom of God displaces and uproots that lie and organizes around that spiritual reality. If we did that, the whole nation would shake in a positive way if the white church had a critical mass, of, just at that most fundamental level, calling white supremacy a system built on a lie, authoritatively declaring truth over that lie of Jesus Christ. If the white church would do that, it would send tremors through our whole nation. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll finish up with this question for you. Um, 2020 has been an unprecedented year for so many reasons. Uh, but one of those reasons has been the, the conversation surrounding uh, racial justice, be- beginning with the murder of, of George Floyd. Um, how have you seen this year, how have you seen the conversation shift? in regards to how we talk about racial justice? I, I don't know. I don't know that I, I have much hope in what's, you know, there was certainly a pocket there, two, four, six weeks, maybe even eight, where there, there was a national discourse around race that's beyond what we typically have. Churches were certainly talking about it more than churches typically do, which I'm glad for. But the same stuff kind of happened, right? There was tons of pushback. People left churches. People wrote mean letters. People fatigued, white people, what I'm talking about here, fatigued quickly. And most of the churches I know who were having elevated conversations at that time are kind of back to normal for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm hoping, you know, maybe I, I hate, you know, one of the things some of our black leaders say is what, why is it the white conscience always has to be connected to black death? which is a hard reality, right? Like that's, again, what I tell the conversation with George Floyd. I wish there would just be one of those, a Trayvon, a George Floyd, a Mike Brown, that would permanently change the consciousness. But what we tend to see is kind of everybody goes back to normal again after kind of life gets back to its regular speed. So I'm hopeful. I kind of alluded to earlier, like what I think has to happen is where it's normative in white Christian spaces that we can openly talk about white supremacy. And what we're not talking about is who's racist and who's not. We're talking about the system, this principality, this power. We're talking about the, we're talking openly about white supremacy. We're talking openly about the lies that sustain it. And we're assisting that as followers of Jesus, we must expose those lies and confront them. Like that, that is when I will feel like things are changing when I'm hearing that consistently happening in white church spaces. But right now, what I consistently hear is pastors are going to lose their jobs if they talk about this too much. So even the ones who do care about this have to mute themselves because they'll lose their job. And that's the ones who do care about it. Yeah. Yeah. Where, and I think you've already answered this question in part, um, you know, where, where where do we move forward from here? Like, the evangelical church has, by and large, lost its witness to the world. And that's, that's, uh-huh. just, that's just where we're at. Um, right. I don't even, like, I don't even say how do we regain that, because I don't, at this point, feel like we deserve to regain it. Um, how do we move forward from that as we become, I think, more post-evangelical, I'm using the term evangelical in more of a political sense than a theological sense. For even those of us who might retain our evangelicalism theologically, we no longer want to be associated with the term because of what it means politically. Mm-hmm. Yes. How do we move forward from there? 
I mean, to me, the good news is like being a witness to Jesus never changes, right? Like what it means to be a witness, right? Is to tell people about who Jesus is, the truth of Jesus and his kingdom, right? And then to call people to follow him, um, you know, to get saved and sign up to be a disciple. And so I don't think that ever changes. I agree with you. The reason we've lost our credibility is because instead of saying Jesus is truth and denounces these systems, will you come join with us? We should have always been at the front of this. Now we're not just at the back of it. We're still arguing about whether or not this is a biblical issue or not. Right? So, um, so it's like hard. Not, it's simple, not simple in the sense that mm-hmm. all we really do have to do is become truth tellers again. And once we do that, I think you know. I, again, I, to me, if if the white church was the ones at the front of the line saying this system is built on lies, and as Christians we can't tolerate lies being openly believed like this, the watching world would go, okay. That's interesting. Like, I'm still not sure I'm ready to go to your church. That's interesting. That's what Jesus causes you to do is to, like, call out the lies in this thing. Like, I'm intrigued, right? Um, But, again, we're we're the opposite right now, right? There's a viral clip going around right now of a prominent, you know, biblical scholar who's saying anybody who's the term woke, and this is different than how I'm doing it. He's just saying anybody who's caring about race, like, basically, we, we, in the spirit of orthodoxy, we need to condemn that because it's outside of the scope of Scripture, right? I'm just like, for as long as that's the kind of rhetoric we're having where— white Christians are warning other white Christians about the dangers of talking about race too much. Uh, you know, I, I think we're going to continue to feel irrelevant. Right. And we're not going to actually sound that much different than the very political things we're trying to move away from. Right. I'm sure that's probably not your listeners, but that's where so much of the white church is. So yeah, you, you might be right. We might, we might need to disassociate from like the toxic versions of it, but where we're going is the same to where it's been since the early church. Right. We're pointing people to Jesus, the yeah. truth of who he is in his kingdom. Nothing's changed even a tiny bit on that. Um, we just have lost the salt and light. <laughs> the saltiness is my is my grandfather's, and you know those before me would have said, right? Yeah, um, we, we just we we have become impotent in the face of some of the most threatening kind of realities, and don't know how to point people to Jesus in the midst of it, and that breaks my heart. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, the only thing that I take refuge in is that the church has always functioned best when it was a prophetic remnant, and you know I think that's what I see. God calling so many people toward, and yeah. we, I, I think there's almost this expectation in, in evangelical Christianity that we would be a prophetic remnant. Uh, we just didn't understand that it would be a remnant from within our own culture. Yeah, uh, right. So it, right. it's a it's a it's a it's a culture shock for many people who are making this journey. Uh, well, Daniel, I want to thank you uh, for the conversation. Um, again, the book is White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. It's published by Zondervan. Uh, it's been out for a few months now, so you can catch it on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, your local independent bookstore, wherever you buy your books from. Uh, you can pick it up. It is a, it's a great read. Um, I think that you will, you will be changed by it. It will change the, the kinds of conversations that you have. 